Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today, we're talking about the Mongol conquest of Russia. If you're like me, then you've had trouble this week tearing yourself away from news coming out of Ukraine. As you may know, as part of his casus belli, Vladimir Putin made a sweeping claim about history. On one level, it was as though he wanted to convince us all, which is the basis of this podcast, that history, knowing history, is incredibly important. Unfortunately, the claim that Putin made, which was that Ukraine is kind of a fake country with a fake people in it, that really are just a subset of Russians, isn't exactly accurate. As for his related claim that Ukraine was, for a time, a part of the Russian Empire, well, that is certainly true. But as some have pointed out in response, Russia used to be a part of the Mongol Empire. So, if we follow that logic, then present-day Mongolia has as good a claim on Russia as Russia has a claim on Ukraine. So, today I thought we'd tell that story, which I read about as a child in Taiwan, as a part of Chinese history, of how Batu Khan of the Mongol Empire conquered Russia besides much else. And maybe by the end of the episode, we'll venture even further afield and say something more about Russian history. Batu Khan, or Tsar Batu, as the Russians call him, was born in 1205 to Jochi, the firstborn of Genghis Khan's four sons. Now, Genghis intended to divide the Mongol Empire among his four sons at the time of his death. It made sense. The Mongol Empire had grown so large that it was outrunning the communications technology of the Middle Ages. You really couldn't expect the great Khan in Mongolia to deal with administrative matters halfway across the Eurasian continent. It took messengers months just to carry a message from one end of the empire to the other. There was just one problem with Genghis Khan's plan. The eldest of his four sons, Jochi, predeceased him. And the portion of land that was to go to Jochi, his appanage, was the western extremity of the empire, now parts of southern Russia and Kazakhstan. As Jochi was dead, when the empire was divided following Genghis's death in 1227, his appanage went to his eldest sons, Batu and Orda. Jochi apparently actually had as many as 40 sons, so I guess they didn't want to divide the empire any further. Notably, though, Orda was actually older than Batu, so had seniority. But Orda acknowledged his younger brother's supremacy as the chief ruler of this entire area, 
which came to be known as the Golden Horde. Despite his Western fiefdom, in 1229, Batu actually returned to Mongolia to join his uncle Ogodai, Genghis Khan's successor as the Great Khan, in his campaign against the Jing Empire, which at this time more or less mapped onto northern China, and was ruled by the Jurchen people, enemies of the Han Chinese of the Song Dynasty. If you happen to have listened to our episode on the Chinese national hero Yue Fei, you may recall that he spent his career fighting the Jing. As the Mongols defeated the Jurchens and conquered northern China, Ogadai held a Kurutai in Mongolia, a grand council of Mongol chieftains. At this meeting, Ogadai ordered Batu to conquer all the nations of the West. And so, in 1235, Batu moved to carry out his uncle's command and launched the Mongols' Western campaign. By his side was Subutai. A man thirty years his senior, who had served as chief strategist for both Genghis Khan and Ogadai. Indeed, by the end of his life, Subutai had overrun more territory than any other military commander in all of human history. First, they conquered the Bashkir people, a Turkic ethnic group still surviving as a minority race in Russia. Then. In 1236, Batu and Subutai crossed the Volga River, running through present-day southern Russia, and invaded Volga, Bulgaria, a state made up of Turkic as well as Slavic peoples, not to be confused with Bulgaria, in the Balkans. In 1237, Batu sent envoys to the Grand Duchy of Vladimir, or Vladimir Suzdal. One of the successor states of Kievan Rus and one of the major Russian principalities of the time, demanding the surrender of Prince Yuri II. The Laurentian Codex, a compendium of chronicles from the time, records Yuri's interaction with the Mongol envoys as follows: As they did before, the messengers came, those evil bloodsuckers, saying. Make peace with us. He did not want that, as the prophet said, "Glorious war is better than disgraceful peace." These godless men, with their deceitful peace, will cause great dismay to our lands, as they have already done much evil here. And so Yuri refused to submit. Hearing Yuri's answer. Batu laid siege to the city of Ryazan. After several days of fierce battle, the Mongols completely destroyed Ryazan, which has never been restored to its former glory. Yuri's sons then led an army against Batu, but the Mongols easily defeated them. Then the Mongols proceeded to destroy several other Russian towns, including Moscow. At the time, only a minor city. In 1238, 
the Mongols went on to lay siege to the city of Vladimir itself. Yuri escaped to Yaroslavl, but the rest of the royal family died when the city fell and was burned to the ground. Yuri came back with another army, but as you may be expecting by now, the Mongols completely annihilated this army at the Battle of the Sit River on March 4, 1238. Batu's army proceeded to go around destroying more Russian cities, using Chinese siege engines to accomplish this task. The only major cities of Kievan Rus to survive were Pskov and, notably, Novgorod, the latter because its leader, Prince Alexander Nevsky, preemptively surrendered to the Mongols. Nevsky would go on to be remembered as a great hero to the Russians, something you may be surprised to learn given his quick surrender, but we'll get to that. Finally, in December 1240, the Mongols stormed the gates of Kiev, the actual center of Kievan Rus, the early Slavic state from which modern Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus all derive. In fact, it was because of the Mongol destruction of Kiev in 1240 that Moscow began to develop as a major center. Without Mongol conquest, there would be no modern Russia. After that, Russian and Ruthenian, that's an old name for Ukrainian, principalities all became Mongol vassals. Yet Batu and Subutai still weren't done. They resolved to reach the ultimate sea in the distant west. The Mongols invaded Central Europe in three groups. The first drove into Poland, defeating Henry II the Pious, the Duke of Silesia and the Grand Master of the Teutonic Order, at the Battle of Legnica. The second group crossed the Carpathian Mountains, and the third followed the Danube River, both to sweep across the Hungarian plains to defeat Bela IV of Hungary at the Battle of Mohi. Then they went south to Dalmatia in present-day Croatia, as well as westward into Austria. Fighting the armies of the Holy Roman Empire, Batu demanded the abdication of the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II. Frederick and Pope Gregory IX called for a crusade against the Mongols, but the nations of Europe were sufficiently divided to fail to answer the call. The Mongols then laid siege to Vienna. And here was the story that I read as a kid. As Batu and his Mongols encircled Vienna, the European defenders cowered within. It was surely only a matter of time before Vienna fell. And then the Mongols would go on their rampage into even Italy. And then, dramatically, a messenger arrived all the way from Mongolia. The great Khan, Batu's uncle, Ogodai, had died. Per Mongol custom, all the Khans of Mongolia were now summoned to another Kurutai in Karakoram, 
the capital of all of the Mongol Empire, to elect the next great Khan. As a grandson of Genghis Khan, Batu was a candidate for the top job. But, per the Mongol law of Yasa, he needed to be present at the Kurutai if he wished to throw his hat in the ring. And so, miraculously, as though through divine intervention, the Mongol siege of Vienna suddenly lifted. And European Christendom, if only by the skin of its teeth, survived to fight another day. But that was the rest of Europe. The lands of the Eastern Slavs, modern Russia and Ukraine and Belarus, suffered a very different fate. Batu never did become the Great Khan, as the Mongols elected Guyuk Khan instead. So Batu returned to his appanage in the west to rule over the Golden Horde. After Batu's death in 1255, his descendants continued as overlords of the Slavs for well over 200 years, until Ivan the Great, the Grand Prince of Moscow, finally forced out the Mongols in 1480. Suffice to say, then, that the Eastern Slavic peoples lived through a very different historical experience than their Western and Central European cousins. Finally, I want to say a little more about Alexander Nevsky, the Prince of Novgorod. As I said, Nevsky readily acquiesced to Mongol overlordship when Batu Khan demanded it of him. So how is it that Russians consider him a national hero? I first learned about Nevsky in college when I took courses on Russian and Russian history. It was then that I also learned that in 1938, on the eve of World War II, the great Soviet filmmaker Sergei Eisenstein made a film about him called simply Alexander Nevsky. The film came with a soundtrack by no less than the great Russian composer Sergei Prokofiev. The story of Nevsky in real life and as depicted in the film, which had substantial propaganda intent, says a lot, I think, about Russia even today. You see, even as Nevsky readily acquiesced to Mongol overlordship, he chose to fight another enemy, the Livonian Order of the Teutonic Knights. As a part of what was known as the Northern Crusade, the largely German Teutonic Knights invaded the lands of Eastern Orthodox Christians with the aim of converting them to the Catholic Western version of Christianity. Nevsky chose to surrender to the Mongols because, he figured, the great Khan in Mongolia didn't give a damn what religion his subjects followed. As long as Novgorod paid tributes to the Mongols, they could worship God in the orthodox manner as much as they liked. The Teutonic Knights, on the other hand, though they were fellow Europeans and Christians, sought precisely to force Russians to adopt a different understanding of Christ and God. 
Nevsky's choice remains incredibly telling. A Russian leader would rather ally with an Asian despotic regime than to come under the dominion of Western Europeans who perhaps looked down on the Easterners and sought to convert them to the correct Western point of view. Nevsky, and this was the climax of Eisenstein's film, proceeded to defeat the Teutonic Knights at the Battle on the Ice in 1242, fought on the border between modern Russia and Estonia. For that victory, for his defense of a Russian point of view from Western European encroachment, Prince Alexander Nevsky became Saint Alexander Nevsky. In my view, all this history says a lot about today's Russia, about Putin, about the present war in Ukraine. What does it say exactly? I'll leave up to you. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.